Hi there. My name is James McMillan, and I'm so happy that you've chosen to take a bit of time to sit down and check out this video series on death and dying, a topic that, well, let's be honest, uh, might strike you as rather dark and morbid. And to be sure, we are going to cover some material that will be heavy and difficult, but my hope is that it will be ultimately helpful and hopeful for you. Death is an inescapable reality, and my goal would be that this video series might just be one small means of preparing you to be better equipped to face death and to support those who are dying. I'll be speaking as a Christian to fellow Christians, drawing on our shared tradition, which has much to say about this topic and much wisdom to offer. However, even if you're not part of the Christian tradition, I hope that it might still provide you with some food for thought and that it will help us all better approach death and dying with wisdom, courage, and hope. By way of background, I am a physician who trained in family medicine and who now has a particular interest in and clinical focus on palliative care. Before we jump into this first session, I'll just give you a quick flyby overview of what we're going to be doing in the next three sessions. In this first session, we're going to be doing a quick overview of where we're at as a culture when it comes to death and dying. We'll be evaluating some common cultural attitudes that we as individuals, families, churches, and as society more broadly often assume. We'll also consider how our cultural landscape has changed with advances in medicine, shifts in family structure, and changes in how care is provided. And finally, we'll explore the challenges and opportunities that this current cultural moment offers us. In the second video in our series, we're going to be exploring how the Christian tradition uniquely informs our understanding of death and dying. We'll see how Jesus interacted with a dying friend. We'll discuss specific aspects of Christian theology and tradition, which speak directly to these topics. And we'll see how they might prove to be a source of wisdom and hope, and also how they might challenge some of our cultural assumptions. And finally, in our third session, we're going to talk about preparing for your own death. We'll touch on the Christian tradition of Ars Moriendi, or the art of dying. We'll explore some really practical issues like advanced care planning and discussions of goals of care. We'll introduce the concept of palliative care and discuss the setting and priorities and the reframing of hope in a terminal illness. We'll also offer some suggestions for those who are caring for the dying, and finally, how the church can help promote what we'll call a culture of resurrection. So obviously, we've got a lot of ground to cover here, and um, I'll add that what we do cover will be partial. While I recognize that it will be incomplete and won't answer all the questions that you have, I hope that it will at least be helpful um, as an introduction that might spur more conversations, and deeper reflections among your family, friends, and your church community. So to that end, um, I'll mention a few resources um, that I'd personally found helpful in articulating a Christian vision of death and dying. And I'd like to acknowledge a handful of books that were very helpful in informing the content of these videos, and which I think you might find beneficial as well. Uh, first, 
the end of the Christian life, how embracing our mortality frees us to truly live by J. Todd Billings, who is both a professor of theology, but also a person who is suffering with cancer. And so both his expertise and his experience, I think, make him a very valuable and wise voice. The Art of Dying, Living Fully into the Life to Come by Rob Mole is a really thoughtful and practical reflection on the Christian tradition of dying well. On Death by Tim Keller is a short but wise reflection that highlights the resources that Christian teaching offers in facing death. A Faithful Farewell, Living Your Last Chapter with Love by Marilyn McIntyre is a unique book where drawing on her experience both as a writer and as a volunteer in hospice, she gives voice to beautiful, profound, and practical meditations from the perspective of a dying individual. She addresses a wide range of sensitively chosen subjects, including anger, sharing bad news, losing control, nausea, pain, loss of privacy, family conflict, gratitude, boredom, forgiveness, food, and even spiritual adventure. And finally, Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End by Atul Gawande, who is a surgeon and a writer. And in this book, he provides a a really thoughtful critique of modern medicine and contemporary culture's approach to the end of life and offers a better way forward. So I'm grateful for all these authors and their insights, and I commend their works to you. So let's begin this first session and this conversation by trying to figure out where we are. So we're all familiar with the famous saying of Benjamin Franklin that in life, nothing is certain except death and taxes. And while death is certain, how death has been understood and encountered has changed over time. In particular, our contemporary Western society has had quite significant shifts in both our perspective and experience of death and dying. And this is due to a variety of factors, medical and technological advances, changes in family structures, and attitude shifts in the broader culture. I think that we can categorize how contemporary culture's perspective on death and dying has changed under a handful of descriptions. So I think that compared with previous generations, we as a society are delaying death, relocating death, ignoring death, denying death, refusing to accept death, controlling death, redefining a good death, and ultimately minimizing death. I'd like to take some time to examine each of these. So first of all, delaying death. As a society, we are simply just living longer. This graph that I've got here plots the average life expectancy over time, and it shows a pretty astounding shift that took place in the late 19th century. Until that time, life expectancy was roughly 35 years in the Americas and Europe, and just 29 years worldwide. This alarmingly low number was due to a variety of factors, including poorer nutrition, sanitation, infrastructure, and medical care, as well as a notably high rate of infant and child mortality and a high rate of maternal death in childbirth. Tim Keller relays just one of many possible examples. The prominent British minister and theologian John Owen outlived every one of his 11 children. 
as well as his first wife. He literally saw essentially every person that he loved in his family die before his eyes. And while his example is tragic, it was not entirely atypical. The average family in colonial times lost one out of every three children before adulthood. And many children witnessed the death of one or more of their parents before they themselves were adults. And as we'll talk about shortly, most people cared for their dying loved ones themselves at home, bringing death unavoidably into their lived experience. We can be profoundly grateful for the progress that humanity has made in terms of nutrition, sanitation, infrastructure, medical care, antibiotics, the treatments in accidents and trauma, and many other factors that have nudged our life expectancy ever higher and our childhood mortality lower. However, this progress can tend to support the illusion that death is perhaps something that can be put off indefinitely. While we can and should triumph or celebrate the triumphs of progress, one consequence is that we're less accustomed to encountering death. The first time I actually recall ever seeing a dead body was not until I was 21 years of age in medical school. And I'm probably not a huge outlier in this. Death is just not as immediately present to us as it was in generations past. And that brings us to another shift, relocating death. Whereas in generations past, people largely died at home in the presence of their immediate family, it is now much less common for people to die at home. In the early 1900s, 14% of all deaths occurred in an institutional setting like a hospital or nursing home. By 1914, that figure had jumped to 25%. And by the end of the century, it was nearly 80%. As a side note, Atul Gawande points out that societies have tended to go through three stages of medical and economic development, which manifests in the location where people die. He says that in the first stage, when a country is in extreme poverty, most deaths occur in the home because people don't have access to professional diagnosis and treatment. In the second stage, when a country's economy develops, the greater resources make medical capabilities more widely available, and at the end of life, they often die in the hospital instead of the home. And then in the third stage, as a country's income climbs to the highest levels, people have the means to become concerned about the quality of their lives, even in sickness, and deaths at home actually rise again. And while our contemporary Western culture is gradually making space to allow more people to die at home, the reality is that the majority of deaths still take place in institutions outside of the home. There are many reasons for this. Um, as people live longer and by means of medical advances survive illnesses that previously would have been fatal, like some strokes, heart attacks, or significant infections, people often now have to contend with chronic disease that, along with aging, results in a more gradual decline in function. The challenges of advanced frailty and chronic disease just make the practical realities of their care very difficult to manage at home. In addition, contemporary families just tend to be smaller compared with the past, and we don't as often live together in intergenerational homes. Globalization and modern mobility have spread families further apart geographically, and these realities 
result in fewer available caregivers for the aging, the ill, and the dying. And so the aging, the ill, and the dying are often out of sight. This increasing isolation is not an entirely new phenomenon. Uh, Tolstoy's novella, The Death of Ivan Ilyich, shows that the road to death is often marked by increased isolation. But this tendency has just only been amplified in the last century. In earlier generations, when more people died at home, their care was to a large degree provided by family members, including young children in the home. In fact, what we now refer to as the, quote, living room was not always a living room. In fact, it was often a dying room. It was previously referred to as a parlor. Now, we almost never apply that term in our home anymore. In our contemporary experience, the word parlor is generally a space exclusively found in a funeral home, the, quote, funeral parlor which J. Todd Billings describes as that awkward place for viewing the dead, outfitted with overstuffed furniture, fern stands, knickknacks, draperies, and the dead. And this wasn't just a semantic shift. As more people died outside of homes and in institutions, we became not only less frequently and less immediately in contact with death, but also less comfortable with death. Whereas children used to be regularly and actively involved in caring for dying relatives, our current tendency is more to shield children from exposure to death and suffering. Whereas a dead body used to remain in the house for some time, with the family being involved in the cleaning and preparation of the body for burial, now we often spend little time with the dead body of a loved one, often preferring to have it quickly whisked away to be dealt with by the professionals. One further expression of this relocation of death is seen in the Christian community. At one time, church property served as a cemetery for the community, marking the resting place of deceased family, friends, and fellow parishioners. And often inside church buildings, there were tombs or other memorials. And so every Sunday, when people would gather for worship, they would unavoidably have to walk through or at least past a cemetery. And inside the church building, they would be quite literally surrounded by the deceased members of the community of faith. Now, for many reasons, and some of them quite understandable, including concerns of public health and sanitation, this practice has fallen out of favor. However, it's just one more example that shows how we have relocated death from our everyday experience. And all in all, this tendency to relocate suffering, death, and dying away from our immediate experience ultimately contributes to our being less prepared for what we will unavoidably have to encounter. As J. Todd Billings says, insulating ourselves from creation's groaning removes us from reality. When we block out the groans of others, we find ourselves unprepared when the time comes for our own groaning. We lack the language for grief as we stand near the graves of our loved ones. Another posture that our contemporary culture finds itself is in ignoring death. While we recognize that death is a theoretical or abstract reality, we either consciously or subconsciously push it to the back of our minds or to the margin of our concerns. And certainly our modern age 
provides us with endless and immediately available distractions. Television shows, breaking news headlines, social media updates, texts, emails, pings, notifications that just keep our mind in a state of frenetic activity, diverting us from having to think about the hard reality of our own death. In addition, our culture tends to idealize and idolize youth. We fixate on and celebrate youth culture and youthful bodies. It's, it's hard to overstate how much time, energy, and money is spent on avoiding the realities of growing older. This is, of course, not a new phenomenon. I mean, there are countless examples in ancient literature of the quest for the elixir of youth or immortality. But our contemporary society exploits this natural drive in the ceaseless promotion of fashion, products, technologies, and procedures that promise to give one an ever-youthful appearance. We try to forget that we're aging and that we're all on that one-way trip towards the end of life. This impulse to push aging and death out of our awareness um, is a manifestation of our contemporary culture. Whereas the Victorians probably had an unhealthy obsession with death, constantly putting it on display, for example, with mourning clothes, veils, armbands, memorial statues, relics, ostentatious tombs, and in their frequent songs and poems, and whereas the Victorians famously tried to hide sex from public consciousness, our culture tends to do the reverse. We have little hesitation to put sex on display, and we try to push death to the margins and out of the public eye. The famous children's bedtime prayer, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take seems not only quaint to our modern ears, but positively morbid. This tendency to ignore or sideline death is actually not a historically Christian approach. St. Benedict of Nursia urged his early monastic Christian friends to keep death daily before one's eyes. And Jonathan Edwards likewise made a regular practice of intentionally reflecting on his mortality, writing that he was resolved to, quote, Think much on all occasions of my dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Now, you might think that this is a peculiar and maybe even somewhat morose practice, but it is, in fact, a distinctively Christian idea that is informed by Scripture. For instance, in Psalms 90, verse 12, the psalmist prays, Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And in Psalm 39, David prays, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. So acknowledging and regularly reflecting on our mortality is a Christian posture that our culture tends to resist. There is a Christian tradition called Ars Moriendi, which translate as the art of dying. And we're going to talk about it in greater detail in a subsequent video. But among other things, it encourages Christians to embrace and prepare for the reality of one's death, partly by regularly thinking about it. Now, this tends to focus our priorities and nudges us to live with an eternal view in mind. Needless to say, cultural forces do not make this easy or an intuitive an intuitive way of thinking. These cultural forces 
can ultimately lead us to deny death. Now, of course, most of us don't actually believe that we are never going to die. But as Cicero famously said, no man is so old that he does not think he can live for another year. So while we acknowledge that death is a theoretical possibility, we often don't think of it as a true existential reality that concerns us. Again, we distract ourselves from it and, and flee from it every chance we get. In 1973, the cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker published a landmark book called The Denial of Death, which actually won the Pulitzer Prize. And it asserted that at root, all of our human and cultural activity is an effort to resist the reality of death, a defense mechanism against the threat of mortality. In it, he maintains that the idea of death, the fear of it, haunts the human animal like nothing else. It is the mainspring of human activity, activity designed largely to avoid the fatality of death, to overcome it by denying that it is the final destiny. He illustrates how so many things in our modern culture, romantic love, career aspirations, social movements are all, quote, immortality projects or ways that we try to manage death anxiety and create meaning beyond our own lifespan. We engage in these and other pursuits as an effort to resist the idea of death and to find significance outside of God. Another way that our culture can be said to deny death is how when we are forced to think about death, we often reframe it as more of a pragmatic concern that we can work to, quote, solve, or as a way to push some product or idea that promises rescue. As J. Todd Billings says, when death appears in our broader cultural liturgy, it's often to provide a touch of drama in order to sell a product, such as a new home security system, or to promote a political cause like gun control or gun rights. In big ways and small, our desires are turned away from embracing our impotence, our limits, the smallness of our mortal lives. We've been conditioned to receive news reports of wars, drownings, and shootings as confirmation that yes, death happens to other people and that we can ultimately control it if only we buy the right products, support the right political causes, and avoid whatever may put us at risk of the kinds of senseless deaths that make the nightly news and populate our news feeds each day. He goes on to say that when our most consistent cultural encounters with death are attempts to sell us an idea or a product, it's no surprise that we come to see death as a bluffing foe. Although we may have many defense mechanism strategies that seek to deny death, we know that it is ultimately real. It's an inescapable reality. So in response, we often further try to diminish it or manage it or control it by other means. The famous Dylan Thomas poem begins, do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. This impulse to refuse to accept death, to rage against death, is natural as human beings with a survival instinct to live and to thrive. However, this raging can lead us to accept, to refuse to accept our natural limits. 
And modern medicine can sometimes give us the illusion that there's always something more that can be done. There's the fourth-line chemotherapy, the new experimental drug trial, the aggressive surgery, the feeding tube, the heroic measures of CPR, always something that can be done, often with little consideration for the likelihood of success or the likelihood of difficulties that aggressive treatments can bring to dying patients. As Atul Gawande explains, the simple view is that medicine exists to fight death and disease, and that is, of course, its most basic task. Death is the enemy, but the enemy has superior forces. Eventually, it wins. And in a war that you cannot win, you don't want a general who fights to the point of total annihilation. You don't want Custer. You want Robert E. Lee, someone who knows how to fight for territory that can be won and how to surrender when it can't. Someone who understands that the damage is greatest if all you do is battle to the bitter end. And interestingly, when it has been studied, it seems that the patients who are most likely to pursue, quote, heroic measures are those who are highly religious. In one major study conducted by the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, highly religious cancer patients who were predominantly Christian were more than three times as likely as other patients to opt for extreme measures. This raging, this instinct to refuse to accept death springs from many sources, perhaps an unwillingness to accept our mortality, perhaps a misunderstanding of the limits of modern medicine, perhaps a fear of death, perhaps an assumption that our primary source of hope and meaning is to be found in this life, or perhaps feelings that we are in ultimate control of our desti destiny. But those are all assumptions that I think can and should be contested. As our society has become increasingly individualistic and has come to prize autonomy as one of the highest, if not the highest good, it's not surprising that we should see increasing efforts to control death. When our mortality is on the horizon and the road towards it seems like it'll be marked with functional decline, increasing dependence on others, and other sufferings and limitations, society tells us that perhaps we should launch our own preemptive strike. When we perceive that life no longer seems worth living, and when we are operating under the assumption that life is the sovereign property of the individual self, it's little wonder that we would make space for medical assistance in dying or assisted suicide. As mentioned earlier, modern medicine has shifted the landscape of dying. Instead of expecting quickly fatal infections, deaths in childbirth, or deaths from trauma, we are now more likely to have slower deaths from chronic illnesses. Whereas a heart attack or stroke may have previously resulted in a rapid decline in death, modern medicine has often allowed people to survive such incidents, perhaps with some functional impairment, but alive nonetheless. Whereas some cancers used to be uniformly and rapidly fatal, now some cancers can be cured and others can at least be slowed. And in response to this reality, you'll often hear people say, I hope I just die in my sleep, or I hope my death is immediate, that I just drop dead one day. And a sudden death is now perceived to be good, and a slow death is perceived to be bad. 
while this redefinitional impulse is understandable, it is a definite departure from traditional Christian understanding of death. The Ars Moriendi tradition argued that death was an opportunity to ensure reconciliation with the people around you, to give and receive forgiveness, to extend blessings and words of instruction and hope for the loved ones you were leaving behind, and as an opportunity to bear witness to your faith. Rob Mull says, death, Christians believed, was not just a medical battle to be fought, though they did use medicine for healing, nor was death simply about the loss of precious relationships to be mourned. Instead, this was a spiritual event that required preparation. The dying performed it in public as evidence of their faith and to provide instruction to others, to express our faith in God, our love for one another, and our hope in the resurrection. He says that a death that doesn't afford the opportunity for last words, for reconciliation, for repentance, and for spiritual preparation for the next world is not a good death, according to traditional Christian teaching. Although we may try to ignore and even deny death, ultimately we realize we cannot escape it. We unavoidably will encounter death, both among our family and friends and ultimately in our own lives. And one way we try to cope with this harsh reality is to try to minimize its significance. Sometimes this is direct and conscious, and in other ways, it's subtle and subversive. One notable example is the shift away from traditional funerals. Now, part of this impulse is understandable. Some people rightly complain that the funeral industry can, perhaps in its worst moments, exploit grieving and vulnerable families, urging them to purchase expensive coffins, flowers, and other goods and services which may not be necessary. But I think more fundamentally, our culture has sought to move further away from the traditional funeral because it makes us uncomfortable. We just don't like death and we don't like grieving. So we seek to reframe the whole experience as a celebration of life. Now, of course, we should celebrate the life of the one we lost, but sometimes this is all that a funeral becomes. Whereas traditional services were marked by a sober accounting of the loss and reflections on our mortality, contemporary celebrations of life tend to whitewash the darkness funeral directors are increasingly having to assume the role of event planner. Not wanting to dampen the mood too much, they often feel impelled to minimize grief and loss and simply host a party in honor of someone who can't attend. As J. Todd Billings comments, Christian funerals have followed a similar path. The older pattern was to bring the coffin and thus the body of the deceased to the congregational worship service centered on the death and resurrection of Christ. The funeral was a service for the whole congregation, important for the discipleship of both young and old. In contrast, the newer trend is to leave the body of the deceased behind, as that might dampen people's mood. The service has a positive spin with polished videos and rousing music. And while these services intend to honor the deceased, their focus on being a celebration of life often displaces the story of Christ's death and resurrection. Stated differently, all too often the church swaps a Christ-centered liturgy for a sugar-coated personal memorial service to accommodate a death-denying culture. 
In Dante's Inferno, we read, life brings no greater grief than happiness remembered in a time of sorrow. And as Carl Truman notes, Dante was using these words to describe the second circle of hell, not suggesting an appropriate liturgy for the Christian funeral service. In summary, our culture is growing increasingly uncomfortable with death and dying. These postures of relocating, ignoring, denying, refusing to accept, attempting to control, redefining, and minimizing death are defense mechanisms to cope with an enemy we know we must ultimately face. But as we've seen, I think that some of these understandings and responses deserve being challenged, particularly for Christians. As Professor Ben Mitchell has said, of all groups of people, Christians should be able to face dying well. After all, at the heart of our confession is a Redeemer who died. The Christian tradition indeed has much to say about death and dying, and that's what we're going to be exploring in our next session. Thanks.